This morning's scripture reading is selections from the 11th and 12th chapters of the book of Hebrews. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were unbelieving. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The title of the sermon this morning is Saints, and uh, that's, that's what you just heard about this list of the, the great saints. Hebrews 11 uh, is known as, if you've been around church, you've heard this, it's known as the, the Faith Hall of Fame. It's these heroes of the faith, this, this list of these great saints from times past. I want to look at these folks this morning. Uh, the reason I want to look at them is to, to make a point, which an observation, which is that the saints weren't very saintly. Now, there's a, there are two versions of that statement. There's kind of a common observation along those same lines, which is not the point that I want to make this morning. So first, let me flag that. The common observations about the saints weren't very saintly is this idea that uh, they were sinners as well as saints. And that in addition to having these great heroic moments of trusting God and taking these big risks and making these big sacrifices, in addition to that and alongside that, they also had these really bad moments. So they had good days and bad days. So, so Noah builds the ark, but then after the, the flood, he gets drunk. Or uh, David, you know, is this, he kills Goliath, he's this great hero, but then later he steals another man's wife. Or Moses is the great liberator, but then he's also a murderer. So this, this mixed bag, they're saints and sinners at the same time. And that's absolutely true, and it's a great point, but it's not the point that I want to make this morning. 
The point I want to make this morning is that there's a, there's a different sense in which the saints were not saintly, and that's at the exact moment that they were doing these great acts. In the midst of their great acts, their great acts themselves weren't saintly. Not that they had good days and bad days, but that on their best days, they were not saintly. They were not admirable. They were not honorable according to our definitions of those terms. And what it comes back to is this subject, this issue that we've been talking about for the last five weeks that we're going to move on next week, but one more week on this, which is this issue of selfishness. Because according to our understanding, to be a saint, to be a hero, you have to be selfless. That's what makes you a saint, your selflessness. That's what makes you a hero. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago um, called the, the Heroism, the, the Science of Selflessness. That's our understanding of what it means to be a hero or a saint, is that you're selfless. And these men and women just quite simply were not, by any stretch of the imagination. So there's one type of selfishness, one selfish motivation in particular that I want us to look at in this passage this morning. Uh, you see different types of selfishness. You, know, you talk about Moses, he traded the, the pleasures of Egypt for this greater reward of following God. Or Abraham, he left his country and lived in tents because he was looking forward to a greater city. Uh, so there's that, looking ahead to these different types of rewards. But there's, there's one type of selfish motivation in particular that's mentioned at least three times in this passage that I want us to zero in on. It's the most basic selfish drive of all, the most basic biological drive of all, and it's the drive to survive, the drive to save your own skin, the, the drive to protect your own life, and to protect the lives of your family members and your loved ones. And what you see in this passage is it's that, that motivation to save their own skin and to protect their family members that motivated the great saints of the past to do the things that they did. So there's going to be two sections to the sermon this morning. The, the first section is going to be looking at three examples of that. Uh, it's kind of to belabor the point to look at it three times, but I'm afraid you won't believe me otherwise. So we look at it three times in the first half of the sermon, first approximately half. And then the second half of the sermon, back part of the sermon, we'll be asking the question, okay, so even if that's the case, even if it's true that the great saints were motivated primarily by desire to save their own lives, uh, who cares? What, what, what difference does that make to us? What's the point? So again, two sections. First, looking at three examples of this principle that the saints were motivated by a desire to save their own lives primarily. And then second, talking about how that applies to us. So first, the, the three examples. And we'll start with Noah. You can follow along in your, your program there if you like. This is the third paragraph. What does Hebrews say about Noah? It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And what I love about the book of Hebrews, we've, we've seen this already in prior weeks. We've looked at this passage, or at least part of it, in prior weeks in this series. What I love about the book of Hebrews is that it doesn't just tell us what the saints did. It tells us why they did the things they did. It tells us their motivations. So what's the deal with Noah? What was his motivation? What did he do? You know the story is in Genesis 6. God comes to Noah and says, Noah, there's going to be a flood. Everybody's going to die. But if you build this boat, you and your family will not die. So what did Noah do and why did he do it? The, the, the scriptures tell us. By faith, Noah, 
wind warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything here about loving God. But he did this because he loved God. It doesn't say anything here about loving other people. There is no selflessness here, no nobility here at all. All he has to do to, to build this boat, all he has to believe is that the flood is actually coming and that by building the boat, he can save his life and his family's life. All the, the only motivation that's required is fear, just this fear of not wanting to die and wanting to survive. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy Fear built an ark. Why? To save his own family. To save his family. Nothing about loving God. Also nothing about obeying God for obedience's sake. Which is another thing you'll sometimes hear. You know, duty. And I just obey God because he's God and because he said so. And because I'm a saint. And whether it works out well for me or not, I don't care. Because I'm a saint. I'm a hero. So my life be damned. It doesn't matter. I just obey God. No. Noah is looking out for number one. And that's what you see with the, the next example, or skipping down a little bit, this, this woman, Rahab. So let's skip down to uh, the second to last paragraph. Here it says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were unbelieving. So what's the, what's the story here? This one's a little bit less well-known. This one's found in Joshua chapter 2. And here what happens is the, the people of God, the Israelites, are on the march. They've been set free from the Egyptians by God's miraculous power. The story of that, the story of that liberation from Egypt has spread all throughout the known world at that time. And so everybody's heard about this. And then after that, they've, they've been conquering all of these other people. So they, they fight these wars, and they are winning in very dramatic fashion, like these massive blowouts. So they come to this city called Jericho, which is the first uh, walled city that they've attacked and the kind of the most formidable city they've attacked so far. And they send in these two spies to do reconnaissance. There's this woman named Rahab, who's a prostitute, who lets the spies stay at her house for a couple of days while they're scoping out the city. And the fact that she's a, a prostitute is not kind of irrelevant detail. That's the only reason why she has her own house. So she lets these Israelite spies, not her people, the, the people that are going to attack her people, she lets them stay in her house for a couple of days. Well, word gets out. So the, the soldiers come looking for the spies. And it's, they come to Rahab and they say, where are these guys? We heard they were staying here. And, and Rahab does two things. One, she hides them. She goes to great effort to hide them. Two, she lies to the soldiers. And she says, oh my goodness, yeah, those guys were staying here. I had no idea they were spies. Oh, I'm so scared now. But, you know, you just missed them. Uh, they, they went that away. So if you, if you hurry, you can catch them. And the question is, why does she do this? Why does she hide the spies in the first place? Why does she go to the great effort to hide them? Why does she lie to the soldiers? Well, Scripture tells us. She, she says it herself right after the guys leave. She goes up to the roof where she had hidden the guys under the straw and she says, look, uh, obviously I didn't do this for nothing. You know, I, I didn't hide you just to be nice. And let me tell you what I'm thinking here. What I'm thinking is, we've all heard the stories about what you've done to every other group you've fought ever since you left Egypt. We've all heard the stories about your victories, which leads me to conclude that your God, Yahweh, this God I've never heard of before until I heard about you guys, it leads me to conclude that your God, Yahweh, is the true God, the God that made heaven and earth, 
and that therefore you're going to win when you fight us. That when you fight us, we're all going to die. And so here's what I'm asking. What I'm asking is that when you fight us and when you kill everybody in this city, I don't care who else you kill. You can kill my friends. You can certainly kill my customers. Just (laughs) don't kill me. Don't kill me and my family, my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, my nieces and nephews. Just save them. And what she says word for word is she says, I've shown kindness to you, so now you need to show kindness to me. Tit for tat. And she makes them swear in the name of their God, Yahweh, a God that she doesn't worship, but she knows they worship him. She says, swear in the name of your God, Yahweh, that you'll do this for me. And they do swear, and they do do it. When they take the city the next day, they save her life. And this is a great example of the distinction I was trying to make earlier between kind of the the first sense in which the saints weren't saintly, uh, which commonly observed, versus this, this second sense in which the saints weren't saintly that I'm driving at. So Rahab's a great example of the first sense in which the saints weren't saintly and that she's a prostitute. So the, the common observation is, look, in spite of being a prostitute, in spite of all this baggage, in spite of being a big-time sinner, Rahab still has a part to play in God's plan and still gets to make it into the faith hall of fame. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? Isn't that gracious of God? In spite of being a prostitute. And, and that's... true as as far as it goes, and I I completely agree with that. But there's there's also this other point, which I find far more interesting, which is that not only is Rahab a prostitute, she's also this incredibly opportunistic liar and traitor. And unlike with her being a prostitute, it's not that she makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame in spite of being a liar, and a traitor, she only makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame by virtue of being a liar and a traitor. It is her lying to and betraying her own people. That's the only reason she's there to begin with, not in spite of, but because of. And this just drives people crazy. You know, Immanuel Kant, the, the uh, brilliant German philosopher, this very moral, uptight guy, this just drove him insane. Rahab just gave him fits, and he just would go in all these mental gymnastics to try to get around it. But you can't get around it. It's there. It's there. And not only is it there, but notice again, like with Noah, what's not there. Nothing here about loving God. She doesn't even know God. How could she love him? Nothing here about selflessly loving other people. She doesn't love these spies. She doesn't care anything about these spies. She sees how she can use these spies to save herself and her own life. And you say, well, yeah, but she did risk her life to save them. You know, she, she, she did something very risky and very brave. She, risked, she could have been killed by the soldiers. She risked her life to save them. But that, that's, that's just it. She didn't risk her life to save them. She risked her life to save herself. She, she saw two options here, and she took the option which she thought was most likely. She's just running the numbers, probability. Am I more likely to survive by hiding these spies and making a deal with them, or am I more likely to survive by sticking with my people? And she takes the path by which she thinks she has the best chance of survival personally. And I think that's the best way to to look at the third example, which is this example of Abraham and Isaac. So let's look at what what Hebrews says about that one. This is uh, in the middle of the passage there. It says, By faith Abraham... When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So you probably know this one, whether you've been around church or not. This is, this is a pretty famous story, even just culturally, even outside of, of Christianity and Judaism. And the way it, it happened was that God and Abraham make this contract. They make a deal. And God says, Abraham, if you obey me and do whatever I says, or whatever I say, whatever I says, um, <laughs> if you obey me and do whatever I says, uh, then I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you this great land. Uh, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to give you a child, which is something that you haven't been able to do for yourself. You and Sarah have been trying to get pregnant. You have not been able to get pregnant. I can give you a child. You want it, I can give it to you. And all you have to do is hold up your end of the deal and, and obey me and go to this land and do all these hard things. And Abraham says, okay, I'll take that deal. And so he does, and he upholds his end of the deal. He does obey for decade after decade before God fulfills his end of the deal. But finally God does, and the child miraculously comes through his wife. Sarah Isaac is born. And then a few years later, God, same God, comes and says to Abraham, okay, now I want you to take that child that that I gave you, take that gift, and give it back to me. Now I want you to, to, to kill the child. Which, I mean, going back to Rahab, we are so for, far out of the, the realm of morality here, of nobility. It's not even funny. We're talking about a guy potentially killing his own child to appease some deity. This is not moral by anybody's standards. Which is why it's always funny to me when people, when parents talk about like, I want my kids to, to get religion, you know, to have some religion in their lives for, for moral values. Well, there are a lot of easier ways to get moral values than through the Bible. I read my girls the Bible every night, and most of the time it makes me very uncomfortable. You know, there's, there's parts that are just really not moral at all. In fact, I read them two books, one of which is moral. So I start with the Bible, and then we finish every night with uh, Little House on the Prayer. We're going through the Little House on the Prairie series. And every single night, I'm holding my breath, looking forward to the point where we get to Little House on the Prairie. Because it's relief. This good, old-fashioned American values. This is my worldview. This sits well with me. Whereas the Bible messes you up. But Abraham's not worried about that. He's not worried about whether it's moral or immoral. All he's worried about is, what am I going to do? Because here's the command of God. Here's this fact that I have to grapple with, which is God says, I have to to kill my son. What am I going to do? And what I love about Hebrews is that it tells us that Abraham thought through both options, to obey or to disobey. He thought through both options, and he, he reasoned it out and tried to figure out what are the probable outcomes if I take option A, or the probable outcomes if I take option B, and which one of these outcomes is more favorable to me. So what happens if I take option A, which is to disobey? God says, kill Isaac. My first option is to say, no, I'm not going to kill Isaac. What happens then? Well, this is the way Abraham thinks it out. He thinks, God and I have this deal where I've said I will obey him no matter what, and he says he'll make me the father of a great nation. Up to this point, I've held up my end of the deal. If I break my end of the deal, if I say to God, I'm not going to obey you, then all of a sudden the contract is null and void, and all bets are off. And I have no idea what's going to happen to Isaac. 
Because why is God asking Abraham to kill Isaac? Is it because God can't kill Isaac himself? No, of course not. So the most probable outcome, if Abraham doesn't kill Isaac, is that God does. And then Isaac stays dead. So much for option A. Option B is he he obeys God and he kills Isaac. But if he obeys God and if he kills Isaac, then what that means is that the contract is still in effect. He's still obeyed no matter what. He has still held up his end of the deal, which means that God has to hold up his end of the deal. God has said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation through Isaac. So what Hebrews says is, you heard this, what Hebrews says is that Abraham reasoned. Not that he hoped, not that he prayed, not that he wished, not that he begged. He reasoned that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Why? Because God had said, God had said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation through Isaac. So what choice does God have? He's just trying to save himself and save his son. And the way that you always hear this talked about, which speaking of things driving me crazy, what drives me crazy is this, that it's this, this juxtaposition, this choice between who does Abraham love more, God or Isaac? This idea that there's these things in our lives that we might love more than God, and, but well, God's going to test us and see if we're going to give them up or give this person up or give this thing up or give this gift up for his sake. Well, may, I don't know. Maybe that's true. That's certainly not what's going on here, though. Abraham doesn't have to love God more than he loves Isaac to take this action and make this choice. He just has to love his own son and think through which of these options is going to give my son the best chance at survival long term. So those are the three examples. Those are the three examples from Hebrews chapter 11 about these, these great heroes of the faith, these great saints, and how their primary motivation in the moment that they made their biggest sacrifices and took their biggest risks and did these things that landed them in the Hall of Fame, their primary motivation in those moments was this desire to protect their own lives and the lives of their family and to save their own skin. Now with the, the back half of the sermon, or a little less than half or a little more, more than halfway through, with the rest of the time we have left, I want to talk about how does this apply to us? You know, what, what's the point? Why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this? Because you could almost feel like I'm, I'm trying to discredit these people, you know, like the way that it, like an atheist would who's trying to discredit the Bible and saying, look, your heroes aren't heroes. They're not even, they're not even moral, you know, so why, why do you venerate these people? But I'm not trying to, to discredit them. I'm not trying to say that they're not heroes. I'm not trying to say that they're not saints. What I'm trying to do is, is two things. First, I'm trying to get us to see that they are a lot closer to us than you might first think. Because I think there's this, this thinking where you, you look at these saints or heroes of the faith and you assume, well, they're just wired differently than I am. You know, they've just got the religious DNA. They're just these selfless, sacrificial people by nature, by default. And that's not what you see here at all. You, what you see here is that they're the same self-interested, rational creatures that any of us are. They're, they're motivated by this desire to survive. So that's the first thing. It's just that, that, that these people are well within reach. But the second thing is this, this question of, well, okay, so they're within reach, but what separates us from them? What makes us different from the heroes of the faith? Because let's just, just for the sake of argument, say that we're not heroes of the faith. Let's say that, that, that we are not 
Hall of Famers in God's book. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love you. That's not to say that you're not on the team. But, I mean, there's a lot of people on the team. There's people that, that sit the bench. There's people that are subs or second string. There's people that are starters. And then there's Hall of Famers. And we're talking about the Hall of Famers. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you're not part of that group. And the question is, what separates you? What separates you from the Hall of Famers? What makes them different from you? To the extent that we don't look at them as they really are, we will always get the wrong answer to that question. So if you just go with the standard tropes and you say, well, what, I know what makes them different from me is they just love God a lot more than I do. They just love other people a lot more than I do. Well, if you believe that, then you're going to spend all your time trying to love God more or trying to love other people more, when in fact, that's not what made them Hall of Famers to begin with. So you're not even going to necessarily be closing the gap. The reason I want us to confront them as they are and all of their selfishness is to get us to see that these things that we assume about them and what makes them so great aren't what makes them so great. Same thing for this idea of that they're not moral, they're not noble, or they're not pure. You know, that's what we, we think we need to be to please God. We think we need to be more moral, more noble, more pure. And they're just not noble people. I mean, think about that word noble even for a minute. What is, what is noble? What is nobility? It's a, a class distinction. The nobility, the upper crust, the polite, the well-mannered, the well-bred, the gentlemen and ladies. Well, is Rahab a lady? No. She's a whore who happens to be way ahead of you in God's scorebook. And the question is, why? Why is God more pleased with her life than he is with your life? Because he is. And Hebrews gives us the answer. We looked at it a couple weeks ago already. It's that verse at the beginning of the chapter where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then he gives all these examples of these people who had faith. So what, what is this faith that they had? What Rahab does that we don't do is she treats God as a fact. That's what Abraham does. That's what Noah does. They treat God and God's word and God's authority and God's promise as a fact. So Rahab just says, it's a fact. You're going to win tomorrow. Nobody else sees that. Nobody else sees the cold, hard reality that the Israelites are going to wipe out that city the next day. But she sees it. She just sees a fact that nobody else sees. And she navigates the world in light of that fact. She makes her decisions self-interestedly in light of this different information that she has. It's almost like insider trading, you know, where you just, it's not, it's not that you have different motives than the other people in the market. You're all trying to make money. You just have different information. You believe different facts about reality and you operate based on those beliefs. Same thing with Noah. God says, Noah, there's going to be a flood. So in Noah's mind, there's going to be a flood, which means he better finish that boat before the flood comes if he wants to save his family. It doesn't matter that it's been 99 years and there's been no flood yet. And he's been building this boat and everybody around him has been making fun of him for 99 years because in his mind, the flood is coming. And Abraham says the same thing. He says, look, God promised and so whatever I do, you know, this, this knife in my hand in some ways is less real and less solid than the word of God. I can kill Isaac, but that doesn't change anything because God has said, God has promised. It's a fact. They take him for what he is. They, they just accept it for, for, 
factual. And the other thing they don't do is they don't stand in judgment over him. You know, they don't stand in judgment of God's morals. They don't stand in judgment of God's methods. They don't say, God, this is what I think you should do. They just take it as it comes and self-interestedly try to, to navigate the world as they see it. And what that does is it answers this implicit question that I raised earlier, which is, why do I read the Bible to my girls every night? You know, if, if it's not for, for good morals, well, what is the point? Why, why do I read them these Bible stories every night? And the answer to that is because I believe it's my job as a parent to teach them about the world as it really is. Good or bad, whether they agree with it or don't agree with it, I believe it's my job to teach them about reality so that they can navigate it. And if it's the case that there is this deity named Yahweh, this wild, untamed deity that blesses and curses and saves and damns and tells them they have to do things and then watches to see whether they do them or not, if that's true, I think they should know about that. I think that's a fact that they should be aware of as they make their decisions in the world. See, Laura Ingalls Wilder, to, to some extent it's true and to some extent it's not. You know, she's got selective memory. She's got this limited, narrow, white, American 19th century perspective. She puts a gloss on things. And you read these stories and maybe they're true or maybe they're misleading. But what I know is true is that God showed up in a burning bush to Moses. I know that. That's a fact. What I know is true is that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and then spit back up again. What I know is true is that Daniel went into the lion's den and God shut the lion's mouths. And the reason he shut the lion's mouths is because Daniel was on his side. Daniel was one of his guys. Daniel was a guy who said, here's the king and here's God. And I'm not afraid of the king because I am afraid of God. Because the king can kill me, but God judges the living and the dead. So who am I going to try to please? And because of that, he makes his choices in this self interested, rational manner based on the things he believes to be true about the world. That's what separates these great heroes of the faith from us. Not a different motivational structure. Not that they're more good or more noble or more selfless because they're not. They want to get the best out of life just like you do. They want to be happy just like you do. They want to protect themselves and their own just like you do. And all they're doing is trying to find the path that they think is most likely to do that. And if God says something, they take it as truth. Which is, obviously, I mean, I don't even have to say this. This is the exact opposite of the way people approach faith in New York. For us, what is God? He's a, he's a story. He's a tradition. He's a set of ideas. He's something to, to play with. You know, he's something that you do whatever you want with, and you stand, not that he stands in judgment over you, you stand in judgment over him. So if you don't think a part of the story is moral, well, you just don't tell that part of the story. And if you don't think a command makes sense, well, you just don't follow that command. Well, I don't know what that is. You can call it religion, you can call it whatever you want, but it's not faith. It's not faith, and it's not the type of life that pleases God. So uh, do that what you will. You know, this is one of those where I like, to, I like to stand up here on Sundays and tell you something that I think might be able to help you. 
you know, and maybe it makes you feel good going into the week, and there's something that you can kind of apply. That's what I like to do. And th- this series has been one where I just have felt in the throes of something. You know, I've felt possessed, and this is one of those messages where I have to fear God more than I fear man, and just say, look, this is, this is what I see. This is what I see in Scripture. And what you all do with that is up to you, and what I do with it is, is up to me. But I, I want us to look at it as it really is. Let's pray. Father, we treat everything as real besides you. Every person in our life, every circumstance, everything that happens, we treat all those things as real. And then we look at you and your words to us and your story and your history and your actions and we, we think, well, maybe. God, I pray that you would give us the perspective of these great heroes of the faith. I pray not that you would make us uh, more good or more selfless or even that you would make us more loving, but I, I pray that you would make us people who open our eyes and see the world as it really is, see the universe as it really is, see you as you really are. We know this is something that, that you won't be able, that we won't be able to do without you opening our eyes. We know we can't do this on our own. So that's why we pray. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd give us this perspective. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.